Okay, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 21. Luke 12, and I will start reading at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now notice in Luke chapter 12, verse 20, we have one of the very few times in Scripture where God singles out a person and calls that man a fool. So that causes me to pause and just ask the question, why did God consider this particular man to be a fool? Now the only assessment that's absolutely true is the assessment of God. When God calls a man a fool, you can be very sure he is a fool. But why was the man in Jesus' parable a fool? Well, let's work our way through this passage. In verses 13 to 14, we have the occasion for Christ's teaching. And then in verse 15, we have the substance of Christ's teaching. And then in verses 16 to 21, we have an illustration of Jesus' teaching. Now, let's look first of all at the occasion of Christ's teaching in verses 13 and 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now here we have an interruption by someone in the crowd. And this interruption is kind of hard to fathom. This guy just blurts out something that's completely out of sync with what Jesus had been teaching. In verses 1 to 12, Jesus has been teaching this enormous multitude. And specifically, he's zeroing in on his disciples. And the first thing he tells them in chapter, in chapter 12 is to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So watch out. Be on your guard against hypocrisy because it can flavor and color all of your life. And then he starts to talk to them about judgment day how there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. Anything you've said in the dark is going to be heard in the light. What you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. And so, in other words, you need to be very, very careful because Judgment Day is coming and all of your words and all of your actions will be brought to light and you will be judged based accordingly. And then he tells him in verse 5, to fear God, 
Don't fear the one who can only kill your body, but rather fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he starts talking about, in verses 8 and 9, how we need to confess Jesus Christ. Because some people who are persecuted for their faith will actually be called on to renounce Jesus Christ. But if they do that, Jesus says that he will renounce them in the presence of the angels of God. And then he winds up this section in verse 10 by talking about a sin so heinous, so far-reaching in its implications that someone who commits this sin will never be forgiven, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So you can readily see, I think, that the things Jesus is talking about are, are the most vital and important and the, having the greatest implications of any truths we could possibly imagine. And yet in the midst of this, speaking about heaven and hell and judgment and the blasphemy of the Spirit and bewaring of hypocrisy, this man just blurts out, Jesus, command my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Do you see what's going on? Jesus is focusing on the spiritual and the eternal. And this guy only has eyes and ears to see and hear that which is temporal and natural and physical. Jesus is on a whole different wavelength than this guy. All he wants is to have a little bit more stuff in this lifetime. And Jesus is telling him, fix your eyes on eternity because judgment's coming. Heaven and hell are coming. Prepare yourself to meet your God. Now, it was only natural in that day for a man to come and ask a rabbi to help him in an inheritance issue. Because the rabbis were respected, they were men of wisdom, and they were men of character. They were mature men. And so it was natural for this man to come to Jesus when he faced this kind of a problem or, or an issue. However, I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this man. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now notice he uses the expression man. It was not a rude expression, but it was somewhat cool and distant and aloof. It was kind of like saying, sir. It's formal. It's reserved. This man didn't even come up and ask Jesus if he would help to settle this dispute. He was demanding him to do it. He came up and said, teacher, tell my brother. It's a command. So Jesus responds by telling him that wasn't his place. He says to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? God the Father had not sent Jesus into the world to get enmeshed in materialistic disputes. The will of the Father wasn't for Jesus to minister to the spirit. It was for Jesus to minister to the spiritual needs of sinful men, but not to grant their materialistic desires. So then we have in verse 15, the substance of Christ's teaching. Verses 13 and 14 give us the occasion, how it came to pass. Verse 15 give us the real substance of what he was after. He says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
Now, this is the second time in this chapter Jesus has told his disciples to beware of something. Back in verse 1, he told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now he's telling them to beware of every form of greed. Some versions translate that covetousness. Either that man or his brother or both were guilty of covetousness. And so Jesus is using this teachable moment as an object lesson to teach that enormous multitude that was listening to him something about greed. He's saying especially to his disciples that they must beware and be on their guard that they don't get sucked into the same kind of sin. Now, when Jesus told them to beware and to be on their guard, he was indicating that greed is like an insidious enemy, and we've got to watch out for it because it has the capacity to lure us into its grip while we're even unaware of what's going on. Think about it now. How many times in your life have you ever heard someone, another brother or sister, confess to you that they're greedy or that they're covetous? Now, I have been a Christian 36 years, and I can't remember a single time in 36 years that another Christian has confessed to me that they are guilty of greed. Now, other Christians have confessed many sins to me over that period of time. They've confessed things like lust and fornication and lying and stealing and adultery, bitterness and pride. But I can't remember a single time that anyone has ever confessed the sin of covetousness. Is that because other Christians never commit the sin of covetousness? I don't think so. I think it's because Christians don't even know it's happening. They believe that some people are covetousness or covetous, but they just don't believe that they are. They've been blinded to that particular sin. And that's how insidious this particular sin is. It blinds you to the very sin you're becoming engrossed in. Now, Jesus goes on to give them the reason why they must beware and be on their guard. He says, For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You see, this man believed a lie. This man believed the lie that his life did consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he really believed that if he just got his piece of that family inheritance, then he would really have life. He thought he would really be living if he just had more money and more stuff. But Jesus said, no, not at all. Real life is not found in money or possessions. Real life is found in a real, vital relationship to God Almighty. You see, only God has the ability to give us abundant life or real life. So here's the substance of Jesus' teaching. Beware and be on your guard against greed. Don't swallow the lie that more money and more things will bring you real life. Really, that's a lie from the pit of hell. But how many people have fallen for that lie? I believe millions and millions and millions of people really believe that lie. I mean, just look around you at the people here in the United States and how most of them live. They are striving and struggling to work their way up, working long hours, sometimes seven days a week, 60, 70, 80 hours a week 
trying to make more money because they want to buy more things or buy that dream home or get that expensive car because they really think that if they have it, they're going to have life. Ah, what a terrible thing. But in the end, what happens? You find yourself empty because the only one who can ever truly give you real life is God himself. So that's the substance of Jesus' teaching. Now let's look at the illustration of Christ's teaching. Jesus wants to illustrate the substance of his teaching in verse 15. And so he goes off on this little parable, this story, to illustrate the point he's just made. And he tells a little parable about a man who happened to be rich, and he was a farmer, and he had very productive land. But he had a problem. His land was so productive that the barns that he had constructed weren't big enough to store all of his crops. And so he, he's thinking about this problem, and how can he solve the problem? He's rolling it around in his mind, and finally it clicks. Hey, I know what I'll do. This is what I'll do. I'll just build bigger barns. I'll tear down the old ones, and I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'll have many, uh, a vast area where I can store all of my grain and my goods. And then I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have many years to come. So now just take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, live it up, enjoy the good life. But God is going to say to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And then who's going to get all of these possessions that you've striven so hard to attain? And he winds up this little parable with this explanation in verse 21. Here's the summation. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So now that we've seen the occasion, the substance, and the illustration of Jesus' teaching on greed, I want to zero in on this question. Why did God call him a fool? I've called this message, How to Live and Die a Fool. And I'm going to point out four ways that a person can live and die as a fool, because I want you to avoid being a fool before God. Number one, think only of your earthly life. My friends, if you think only of your earthly life, you will live and die as a fool. Now, this becomes apparent when you examine this man's thinking. God wasn't in all of his thoughts. He never considered God. He never considered his own mortality. He never considered heaven or hell or the judgment to come. And it's all the more strange when you notice that he knew that he had a soul. Notice he says in verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So he knew he had a soul, yet he never did anything to prepare his soul for eternity. What this man really needed to hear was Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26, where he said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So this man never gave any anxious thought or lost any sleep over the eternal destiny of his soul. He was fixated and riveted upon his earthly life alone. 
Notice his words. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So he's banking on these many years to come that he's going to enjoy life. What's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to relax and he's going to party. But he's going to give no thought to the salvation of his soul and to judgment and to heaven and to hell. My friends, honestly, does this describe you? Are you like this man? You might call yourself a Christian, but how much time do you really give to considering and thinking about your eternal future? How much energy do you give to preparing for the world to come? You know, even as Christians, we can live like practical atheists. We can say we believe in God, but our lives are really going to prove whether we do or not. So if you can go throughout life thinking about and fixating upon what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what clothes you're going to wear, and that's it, you're really no different than any other lost person. So ask yourself this. Do you find yourself thinking about your video games or your favorite TV shows or your work? or vacations, or family responsibilities, but rarely, if ever, think of God and His salvation through Jesus Christ? See, it doesn't really matter whether you call yourself a Christian or not. You're like the man in this parable. One day, out of the blue, God is going to require your soul. He's going to put an end to your earthly life, and you will be utterly unprepared. Don't bank on the fact that you have many years to come to enjoy the good things of this life. I call upon you, set about in earnest, to get right with God and to walk with Him in fellowship every day of your life. My friends, please don't live and die a fool by thinking only of your earthly life. Now that's the first way that you can live and die as a fool. Think only of your earthly life. Secondly, believe your riches will bring you rest. Believe your riches will bring you rest. This is another way that you can live and die as a fool. And we find that the rich man in this parable did exactly that. In verse 19, he says, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. You see, he thought that he would get to the place where he could finally rest and relax and just enjoy life. But you know what? That just doesn't work. And there are two reasons why. Number one, because a covetous person never has enough to be able to relax and rest and enjoy life. If you were to ask a covetous person, how much do you need just to be happy and to settle down and enjoy your life, how much do you need? They would say, just a little bit more. The sin of greed is linked to discontentment. The covetous person never has enough. doesn't matter if he has many millions of dollars. It's never quite enough. He needs a little bit more to be content. And he really believes that his riches will bring him rest but they never will because he never has enough riches to rest. That's the first reason why 
Riches will never bring this kind of person rest. And the second reason is because instead of bringing peace of mind, an abundance of possessions only bring anxiety and care. Think about it. Before you invested in stocks, you probably never thought about the stock market. But now that you've invested in stocks, you've got to get on the internet at 6.30 in the morning because that's when the market opens. <laughs> I know this. <laughs> and you have to check out your stocks to make sure you don't have to move things from one place to another. you finding yourself filled with concern and care and it's requiring your attention and your energy. What about before you bought that new car? You had time to play with your kids on Saturday and take them down to the park. But now what are you doing? You're waxing it and washing it and vacuuming it and putting your armor all on the, the wheels and the rims, trying to make them look shiny and clean. What about before you bought that camper? You figured, oh, I'm just going to be able to rest and relax and enjoy life with this camper. And now you find yourself having to fix it and repair it and take it down to people who can repair things that you can't and trying to cover it in the winter so that it doesn't get exposed to the elements. And now all of this time and concern is put upon these possessions that you didn't have to put on them before. Instead of bringing rest, a lot of times an abundance of possessions takes away your rest. They usually heighten your stress and anxiety. So friends, if you live thinking you just need a little bit more money or a few more possessions so that now you can take your ease and enjoy life, the Bible says you're a fool. You're never going to have enough money or possessions to satisfy you. And you're never going to be able to rest and enjoy life by having more and more and more. It's only going to bring more care. You know what? The man with true wisdom is the one who doesn't need more money or possessions to enjoy all God has given him. He's happy and content right now with whatever the Lord has blessed him with. He realizes that more possessions often bring more stress than peace. And so he doesn't spend his life seeking to acquire more and more. My friends, please don't live and die as a fool by believing that more riches are going to bring you rest. Number three, how to live and die as a fool? Consume all your riches on yourself. Consume all your riches on yourself. Look at verse 21. Jesus said, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man was storing up treasure for himself, for himself, for himself, with never a thought of God. In verse 19, actually this is Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's a direct command from the Lord of the universe. Do not store up Treasures for yourself on earth. However, this man had done the exact opposite. And you see it so clearly in the parable. Notice, starting in verse 17, how many times 
He uses the word I and my. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you've got many goods laid up for many years to come. Six times he uses the word I, five times he uses the word my. He speaks about my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, and the scariest phrase of all, my soul. He had never learned the very basic lesson of life that all that he had, including himself, belonged to God. These were not really his crops, his barns, his grains, his goods, or his soul. But he thought they were because he was a self-centered, self-focused, self-preoccupied individual. And he thought of his possessions only in terms of what they could do for him. He consumed, consumed all of his riches on himself. Now, think about it. He's considering this problem. His barns aren't big enough to be able to store all of his crops because his land is producing so abundantly. He never once stopped to consider that this was God's blessing. God is the one that caused his crops to grow so abundantly and to be so productive. And he never once considered that he could take all of the excess that couldn't fit into his barns and storehouses and give those crops to the poor and the needy, the orphans and the widows that could really use that extra food. Never considered selling them and taking the proceeds and just giving it to the Lord's work. And the reason was is because he was infatuated only with himself. Now, my friends, you're never going to be able to advance in spiritual maturity until you realize and truly take to heart this lesson. Here it is. You don't own a single thing. You are just the Lord's money manager. Now, either you're a good money manager or a bad money manager, but that's what you are. You are the Lord's money manager. Everything you have and everything you are belongs to the Lord. He has entrusted those things to you as his manager, his steward. And one day, he's going to call you to give an account for the things you did with that which he entrusted to you. In Psalm 24, verse 1, the Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Notice that. The earth is the Lord's and everything this earth contains, the world and the people who dwell in it. That means you and that means me. We belong to Him. And whatever possessions we have, whatever money we have in our checking account or savings account or in stocks or bonds or investments, whatever we usually say is mine is really His. In fact, I really think it would be good if we would just abolish from our vocabulary the word my and just start using the phrase the Lord's. This is the Lord's car, the Lord's house, the Lord's Bible, the Lord's computer, the Lord's banjo, the Lord's guitar, whatever it is that you own. 
And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is not, what do I want to do with my money? We need to ask this question. What does the Lord want me to do with his money? Now, if it was mine, I could do with it whatever I wanted, but it's not mine. I've been bought with a price. And the Bible says I must therefore glorify God with what I've got. So this often will come into play whenever we get a raise in pay. And I assume if you've worked for any length of time at one point or another, you've gotten a raise. So what do we do? <laughs> as soon as our boss tells us, well, we're giving you a raise and it's going to be X amount of dollars, $100 or $200 a month, we start thinking, I wonder what I can do with that extra money now. We start thinking automatically, don't we, about ourselves. We automatically think, a pay increase means an increase in our standard of living. However, I really believe this. We receive a pay increase not to increase our standard of living, but our standard of giving. Did the Lord give you that extra money every month so that you could just blow it on more video games or go out to more restaurants or go to Starbucks a few more times? Folks, we know what our Lord's passion is. His passion is that we get his gospel to every corner of this globe, to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the planet. It's his will that we invest his money in accomplishing his purposes of bringing salvation to all people around this globe. So if we go around spending money on whatever we want, without consulting him, we are unfaithful, wicked stewards. And we will have to give an account for what we've done with his money and selfishly blown it on ourselves month after month, year after year. So I exhort you, start faithfully giving to God a portion of your income. See, the Lord is so gracious. He didn't have to allow us to use any of the money that he's entrusted to us, but he graciously allows us to use a portion of what he's entrusted to us for our needs, not our greeds, not even necessarily all our wants, but our needs. Yes, meet your needs, but then start faithfully setting aside a portion of what he's entrusted to you to advance his kingdom in the world and to minister to the poor and the hurting. However, be really sure that you're not just taking all of his money and spending it on yourselves. If you're making 30 or 50 or 70 or $100,000 a year and you're not giving anything to the Lord's work, that's sin. That's unrighteous, unfaithful stewardship. And the Lord's going to call you to account one day. And I would just call you to repent of that. You say, well, well, Brian, where should I start? I, I really don't give anything to the Lord's work, and I, I guess I ought to be. Where, where would I start? Well, I don't believe there's any New Testament law. The Old Testament did have a law, and it was the tithe. In fact, there were three tithes, which added up to about 23 and a third percent of a man's income. And it was kind of like a tax. Um, in the New Testament, we do not have any law giving a stipulated amount. But I'll, I'll tell you, I think it's probably wisdom that if you don't know where to start, I would encourage you to take 
10% and just start setting that aside and giving it to the Lord's work. But don't use that as a cap. You use that as the base. That's just training wheels to get started. And as you learn to be faithful with a little, he's going to entrust to you more. And then as he entrusts to you more, give more. And so I would encourage you, as God blesses you, raise your standard from 10% to 12, to 15, to 18, to 20, 25, 30%. And as the Lord prospers you, give as much as you can. Of course, he allows you to meet your own needs. But instead of raising your standard of living so that now you've got to live in this million-dollar home, why not just live simply and use the excess to advance his kingdom? Isn't that what God would want you to do with his money anyway? So, saints, please determine that you will be faithful in managing the Lord's money and his wealth. Don't live and die a fool by consuming all of your riches on yourself. And then fourth, a fourth way to live and die as a fool, make earthly riches your treasure. Make earthly riches your treasure. Look at verse 21. Jesus said, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man wasn't rich toward God. In other words, God wasn't his treasure. What was this man's treasure? Think about it. Well, he tells us <laughs> it's his crops, his grain, and his goods. It's all of that stuff that his land was producing that he was going to store away in these bigger barns because he believed that these crops and treasure and uh, grains and all of that would cause him to have relaxation, would enable him to be able to eat and drink the finest foods and beverages that he could party and enjoy life. So that's really it. His treasure was all of those riches that he thought were going to make him happy. He lived and died a fool because he made earthly possessions his treasure. Now think about this for just a minute. Money in and of itself is just pieces of metal or pieces of paper. We call those pieces of metal coins and we call the pieces of paper bills. And the only reason that these pieces of metal and pieces of paper have any value is because we have decided in our particular culture that they will function as currency. They represent a certain level of value. We can exchange them for things that we value. And so the way a Christian spends his money is important because it's a barometer. It shows what his heart truly values. It reveals what his treasure is. So my friends, you, you can know right now where your heart is. You can know what you really value right now simply by looking at your checkbook, taking a look where you have spent your money over the last 30 days. Where have you been investing the money and the possessions that God's given you? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. <sighs> so where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. 
We can say all we want, that we have a passion for missions, and we have a passion for souls, and we have a passion to plant churches, and we have a passion to minister to the poor and the hurting and the downtrodden. But if we're spending more eating out and going to Starbucks than we are on missions, those are just empty words. The truth is, we value our fleshly desires more than we value the salvation of souls. Did you know that a person can't even enter God's kingdom unless he values Jesus Christ above everything else in life? That's true. Jesus once told a parable in Matthew chapter 13. He said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And one day this man happened to be just traipsing across this field and he stubs his toe, looks down and sees a little something or other protruding from the ground and he starts digging with his hands around that and lo and behold, he finds this treasure chest. He opens it up to see all these costly pieces of gold and silver and diamonds and rubies and he closes up the treasure chest and puts it back in the ground and covers it over and he says, I've got to have that treasure. And so he finds who the owner of the field is and he says, would you be interested in selling this field? Now, of course, he really has no interest in the field itself. His interest is in the treasure that's in the field. And the man says, well, I suppose for the right price, I might be persuaded to solve this field. What have you got, what have you got in mind? Well, I'm not sure. What, what do you think? Tell you what, I'll be willing to sell this to you, but it's going to cost you everything you've got. Everything I've got? You mean everything I've got in my wallet right here? Well, I've got... $242, here you go. Well, that's a good start, but what have you got in your checking account? You don't mean you're going to require that I empty my entire checking account, are you? Well, not only that, but what about your savings account? Not my savings account, too. Here, here you've got my checking account, my saving account, everything in my wallet. It's all yours. Is the field mine now? Well, what about your house? My house? You don't mean I'm going to have to give you my house. Where am I going to sleep? I'm going to have to sleep in my camper. You've got a camper? That becomes mine too. If I give you my camper, what am I going to do? I'll have to sleep in my car. You've got a car. That becomes mine too. See, the basic idea is to become a believer, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to give to the Lord everything you are and everything you have. It means that you... Treasure him as worthy of, more worthy of, everything else in this world. We can't even enter the kingdom until Jesus becomes more worthy in our eyes than anything else. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3.8. He said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, what did this man's life reveal about what he treasured? He treasured his stuff because he believed his stuff would give him rest and comfort and pleasure. So ultimately, what he valued above everything else was himself. He valued his own comfort, his own pleasure, and his own rest. And that's probably why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that covetousness is idolatry because a covetous man worships himself. 
So, my friend, what does God value above everything else? What does God value supremely? The scripture tells us he values himself above all things. That's why over and over and over in the Bible, he tells us that he's doing what he's doing, not for us or for our sake, but for his own glory or for his own namesake. And so if we are going to properly represent God to this world, we've got to value him above everything else in the world. We must value God and his glory above all. And if we do value God and his glory, what are we going to be spending our money on? We're going to be spending our money on those things that exalt God and bring him glory. Things like missions, evangelism, church planting, the needs of the poor. So here's my question to you. What are you showing a watching world that you really value? Do you value all the same things that they do? Do you value your fun and your entertainment and your comfort and your leisure and your fleshly pleasures? Folks, I really believe that entertainment is an idol here in America. We spend far more time and far more money pursuing our entertainment than we do most other things. Or are you showing other people a radically different value system? where God and His glory is what your heart is set most upon. Oh, my friends, do not live and die a fool by making earthly riches your treasure. So my goal this morning has been to challenge you to manage your money and possessions in such a way that you won't live and die as a fool. Instead, you'll live and die as one who's truly wise. So I exhort you this morning, don't think only of your earthly life, Instead, consider God and death and eternity and judgment to come. Don't believe that riches will bring you rest. Instead, believe that a relationship with God through Christ will bring you rest. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't consume all your riches on yourself. Instead, invest your riches in that which will glorify God. Don't make earthly riches your treasure. Instead, make God and Christ your treasure. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these wonderful, exalting truths and burn them into our hearts and souls and enable us, Lord, to walk faithfully to you, to be good money managers of yours, to invest what you've given and entrusted to us and the things that would bring you pleasure, that you would approve, that you would stamp your seal of approval upon, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.